As we prepare ourselves to hear God's word preached, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 44. Really, we're looking at the very last verse of Isaiah 44 and then the first 13 verses of Isaiah 45. I'm going to read those 14 verses and then we will pray and consider God's word together. So listen as I read and then we will pray and consider God's word. Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 28, the last verse of that chapter. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of kings, to open the doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break down in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in the secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who has called you by your name. For the sake of my servant Joseph and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Verse 8. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives against him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who formed it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a mother, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, the one who formed him, ask of me the things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the works of my hands? I made the earth and created man upon it. It was my hands that stretched out the heaven, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness and will make all his way level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare ourselves now to consider your word we would ask that you would be pleased to bless everything that we consider and you would make your word clear. God, we need your uh, help to understand your word. Every time we open it, we are in great dependence upon your spirit uh, to give us a clear understanding. God, I ask that you would assist me uh, to speak your word faithfully, 
that you would be pleased to attend to it with power and clarity in the lives of, of those who you have brought here today. Lord, that we might draw near to you, that we might know you more clearly, that we would get a, just a glimpse of, of your greatness, of your power, and the richness of your promises given to us in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, as we take up this uh, uh, section here in Isaiah 44 and 45, it's important for us to think through a few things as we take this up. Isaiah is a book filled with a lot of prophecies. And uh, w when you look at the different things that are going on here, if you, if you don't see the pieces, you might not grasp the significance of it. For example, the book that we're looking at was written in the middle of the 700s B.C. Now, once I say B.C., that means we're now counting backwards. So, so 500s is bigger or newer than 700s. And, and the events that this is speaking of come in, in the mid-500s. So simply is this. Uh, when we take up this prophecy, this is more than a century and a half. More than 150 years before these events even begin to take place. It is before the man that is being spoken of here, by name, has even been born. It is, it is done in a way, not only 150 years before, but he's going to be born in, not among the children of Israel. He's going to be born in Persia, in the land of uh, distant, not a land that is acquainted with the word of God, not a land that is receiving the word of God. So nobody is strategically thinking, ah, let me name my son Cyrus and thus fulfill the scriptures. This is God demonstrating to the children of Israel, and indeed demonstrating to us, just how powerful he is. That it's, it's not just a, a random uh, attempt to control the things that are going on in this world. But God is so powerful and precise, not merely in predictive prophecy. This guy's going to come, and this guy's going to do this. No, he says, this man is going to be born. This man is going to be given this name. God is controlling the name that will be given to the child. And then he says, and this man will do these things because I am going to make him do them. So it's not God just seeing what's going to happen. The scriptures are declaring to us that God himself knows what's going to happen because God himself is in control of all that's happened. It's not just predictive. It is powerful in God fulfilling and bringing about his purposes. And the way that it happens in this chapter is, is again, one of those ones that's it's so beautiful because these truths concerning God's power are so great that men will have the tendency to think, that's just coincidence. But when you do it with such specific detail, the, the thought of coincidence begins to fall out the window. 
And, and ultimately what's, what's remarkable about this is the, the freeing up of the people of Israel who were, who were taken as captives to Babylon to return to their native land is exactly 70 years after captivity as was prophesied by Jeremiah. So how long they would be in captivity, exactly God says it. Who would be the one who would set them free? God says it. And he says much more detail about this man that I want us to begin to consider. So as we start looking at this and comparing, say, the king of Persia to the king of providence, God in absolute control of everything that ever actually happens everywhere, we take this up. And the first thing that we begin to see are some interesting uh, issues concerning him. The first thing in uh, verse 28 of chapter 44, it says, who says of Cyrus. Here he is mentioned specifically by name before he's even a baby. And, and, and what, what's interesting about this is, and, and what I can't figure out about this, is the, the, the name in the scriptures is Koresh. That's the name in the Hebrew there. And I can't figure out why the English translators went to Cyrus instead of Koresh. Now, it's not related to any guy who used to be in Waco. All right? But the idea of, of this, uh, this name really was, uh, uh, Possess thou the furnace is what it's called. This man was going to roll across the nations like a man on fire. And just bring destruction. What's interesting is. This is a time in history. Where God had established. And built up to absolute dominance. The Chaldeans. Nebuchadnezzar. And they came and they took over the whole area. Now raising up after them. God is now raising up this man. The, this king of Persia. And he is going to overrun the Medes. And you'll have the kingdom of the Medo-Persian Empire. And then he's going to continue sweeping. And he's going to run over Babylon too. So he's going to be the king of the Medes and the Persians and Babylon. Basically Cyrus is going to, to roll across. And everywhere that he goes and that he engages in battle. Just victorious. No one is able to stand against this guy. And what, it, what you see interesting is that first thing that I want us to note here in the calling of Cyrus or the calling of Koresh, um, that he is called by name. It's not accident. It's not after the fact. It's, it's not vague and random. We've discussed before, sometimes, you know, there are individuals who predict. If you ever read, and I hope you don't. In the newspapers, the predictions about what's going to happen if you're under some particular horoscope. You know, it's always vague. You know, this is kind of going on to where, well, that was true last week. It's probably going to be true this week. Pretty much true almost any week. You know, or you're going to meet someone new. or you're, It's all real unclear. Well, somehow you can fit it. Maybe the same thing happens with fortune cookies. Um if you ever open and read those things. Although these days, some the ones that I've read are often advice rather than predictive instructions, and uh, I don't appreciate that. I, you know, <laughs> you know, 
you know. But this is not like that. This is not something random. Or if you've ever read Nostradamus where they say he predicted Hitler and he predicted that, they show those little excerpts from Nostradamus and you think, what is he? I don't even understand what he's saying. It doesn't even look like he's talking about Hitler or anything like that. But they're able to twist the words and say, well, see, this is who he was talking about. I don't see it. With the prophecies of Scripture, there's no, I don't see it. There's no someone coming after the fact and, hmm, what's he talking about? Here it says very clearly, I'm going to raise up a king. And this king is going to be named Koresh. And so immediately, they're, well, how's that going to happen? And where's he going to come from? Well, God has called this guy by name. And, and what's interesting, even when you know it, it says, he is my shepherd. Now, we're going to look at that a little more later, but he's going to raise up this fellow who is a shepherd. Now, a shepherd was a term that was commonly used for the kings of Israel. Because they would lead and they would look after the, the people. Other kings, not so much. The word shepherd is really not used for non-Jewish kings because they were not protectors. They were not providers. They were oppressors. They were punishers. They were problems. But God is going to be raising up this foreign king who will serve like a shepherd who will lead, who will guide, who will provide for his people. And, and when you read about this man and, you, and his exploits historically, he doesn't come across as somebody who is necessarily going to be caring for a lot of people. He's a danger. God calls him by name. It says this in verse 4. Listen. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I called you by your name. He's doing it in advance so that when the time comes, the children of Israel themselves will be sitting there in captivity and they would have been in captivity under Nebuchadnezzar. And then there would have been uh, this this changes to Belteshazzar and then there's the changes to Darius and they're wondering, well, what's going to happen? Suddenly, now Cyrus is king and ruler over Babylon, indeed over most of the known world at that time. And they should have been able to say, oh, now is the time. God has put him in place. And actually, we will see that it is in the first year. Now, the first year, it's not the first year ultimately that he's king. And this is what can be challenging for some people. They like to find wrongs in the Bible. It says in the first year he was king, but history says differently. No, 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 no. He was king of Persia. Then he was king of the Medes and the Persians. Then he took over Babylon and established a vice regent there named Darius. And then he himself established his throne there. And so it was in the first year of his reign in Babylon, not his, the first year of his various kingships and various reigns. If these poor anti-Bible people would just pay attention. But their goal isn't to know and to learn. Their goal is to find fault. And the problem is they can't find fault, so they make it up. 
They make it up by blindly ignoring the flow of events. But God's word always proves true. What a comfort that is to us. Um, in Isaiah 45, verse 5, it says this, I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is, besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. Oh, look at that. Verse 4 said, I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. I equip you, though you do not know me. So listen to this. We, we often, and, and, it, and it's not broad enough of an understanding. We look at the Old Testament and we've referred to God as the God of Israel. He was the God of Israel in a special sense in which he had covenanted to interact with them and give them a law with special promises and privileges as well as special curses and punishments if they disobey. So God had uniquely established a relationship with that nation that he did not establish with any other nations. And that's why at times he's called the God of Israel. But it was important for Israel and for us and everyone else to know this. Though he is referred to as the God of Israel, he is not just the God of Israel. He is the God of all. And he is going to be the one who is going to name. Now, what's challenging is this. Someone's going to say, wait, God says I named you. But it wasn't God who named him. It was his mama. It was his daddy. Or some historians say it was his granddaddy. Well, and here's their idea. That somehow God can't control what mommy and daddy and granddaddy named the kid. You're just not understanding the scope of God's control. God's power is, is so precise and even to the simple detail that he can cause the agreement, the decision, the giving of a name to this particular child and what his name will be. Now, God named him, though he, the, he did not, obviously at the point of his naming, know God. Because how old was he at that time? Little baby boy. Further than that, did his parents know God? No. Did his grandparents know God? No, because they were worshiping all the gods of their nation. And so even over those who are worshiping false gods, completely unaware of the true God, it is nonetheless the true God, the only God, who's in control. Even over people who don't know him. Then it goes on to say, and I equip you. The enabling and strengthening, whether, whether this is a reference to the equipping with, with the skill, the military wisdom, and the military might, or whether it's the equipping with men of war and weapons and soldiers to serve him, who did all of that? Now, in his mind, who would have equipped him? Maybe some of his teachers maybe he sat under the tutelage of some generals who would have equipped him with the soldiers well 
I recruited them. I brought them in. I'm the one who hired the men to make the weapons. I'm the one who equipped. The, see, this is the difference that I want us to make get clear in our minds. Men's and our natural tendency will be to look at what's going on and what has happened and what is happening as if we're the ones in control of everything. And thinking that things have happened because of mom, because of dad, because of teachers, because of enemies, because of this, because of that. And somehow we're missing the reality that God is the one who's in control. Even of the details of names. Even of the equipping and enabling that... No, and you would think, well, if he's equipped him and enabled him, simply the equipping equipping and enabling him will help him to go and have these victories. But God is not even leaving it so that simply this man with the strength that God has given to him will go. But God himself is even directly involved in each of the battles and each of the attacks and each of the victories that this man is going to experience. Because we move from the idea of powerfully called, though you do not know me, powerfully controlled. Thus says the Lord, I'm in chapter 45 now, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. Now that's a phrase that we don't usually use. And so let me explain this to us. That phrase, whose right hand I had grasped, I'm, I'm sure if I ask you what that means, you're having a very literal understanding of that right hand. Got it. All right, this is more than that because in the, in the scriptures to the, to the ancient mind, the idea of the right hand is, is, is a reference to action or activity and power. Okay, so when God has grasped his right hand, who is, who is now controlling this man's actions and power? God. So it's a stronger sentence. It's not, there, it's not that they're holding hands and walking down the beach. Okay? This is saying something much stronger than that. It's not speaking of here any, any scope of, of, of loving intimacy. You know, generally, if someone grabs your right hand and you walk together, you might think that this is sweet. Uh, this is not a reference to sweetness per se. This is a reference to strength and sovereign power and control. Though I'm not denying the sweetness of God and we're thankful for that manifest towards us in Christ. But the way it was being manifest in the life of Cyrus was anything but sweet. Because wherever he would exercise his activity and power, move his right hand so to speak, there was death and destruction. <laughs> There was uh, victory and power. Listen, and this is how it unfolds. That God, grasping his right hand, is going to bring about these things. To subdue nations before him. So when nations are brought under his power and authority, under his kingship, who has done that? His, his tendency would be to say this. My right hand has done this. That would be his only experience. I have done this with my power and activity. Not realizing what? 
who had grasped his right hand. Yeah. And so his right hand had done it, but how did his right hand accomplish such victories? God. Now what's interesting is he's going to come to know this. He doesn't know it while it's going on. He's thinking, look at what I'm doing. To subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of kings. I might say that kind of like grasp the right hand, loose the belts of kings is not a common phrase that we would use. But that's the idea. When someone who was a king would... would uh, cover themselves, dress themselves in their fancy royal garments. The, the last thing that would go on, that, that would wrap around it, was this beautiful, ornate sash or belt that would kind of be the finishing point to his fancy attire. So when you loosen the belt of kings, what does that mean? Effectively, it is like stripping them of their power, their prominence, and their glory. Okay? It, it's not that he's just going around and opening each king's belt a single notch or two. It's, so he's going to become a king. A king of kings. And he's rolling over. And it says to open doors before him uh, that gates may not be closed. But listen, you begin to see from verse 2 how all of this is happening because in verse 2, he starts with these phrases and you see this, these lists of I will. I will go before you and level the exalted places. Or some translations say, I will go, uh, go before you and flatten the mountains. The, the, the places that seem impassable. The victory, the enemies that seem unbeatable. Nah. I will go before you. Here, the, now he's going to go and he's going to win, but he's only later going to realize it's because God went before him. Not only that, I will break in pieces the doors of bronze. Again, those would be fortified metal doors, which would be stronger than just wood. These, and I will cut the bars of iron. All of those things that men would do to secure their cities, and to secure their properties, ain't nothing gonna hold up to the onslaught of Cyrus. Why? Because of Cyrus? No, no, no. Because of God. And he goes on, verse 3, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes of the secret places. Nobody is gonna be able to even hide their treasures from you. So God's going to make him wealthy, reward him. He's just going to give him all of this. He, he's personally called. He's powerfully controlling. And we also see this. God is purposeful in his causes. So God personally called him by name. God is powerfully controlling all of the actual accomplishments of Cyrus. And God is purposeful. And it's important for us to know this. And what I, what I find interesting in this particular passage, which is helpful... We often will ask ourselves, why? Why is God doing this? What is the purpose? And in this passage, with regard to this man, he gives us three purposes. Now, we might think God is wor only working on one level at a time. No. 
God in one event can be working on multiple levels at a time. Is it limited to three? Not at all. The same rainstorm that may come, it can have all kinds of effects. It can cause someone to not leave their house who was going to leave and might have gotten a car accident. It will water the earth. It can wash away things. There could be so many things happening. Three different purposes are involved right here in the calling of Cyrus. And I want to point them out to you. The first one is in verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by name. So one of the reasons why God is raising up this man, Cyrus, and that God is going to give him this prominence and this position where he absolutely reigns over everything in the area is for what? The sake of his chosen people, Israel. But only that? No, look would be at verse 6. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west. Now, just as a simple lesson, where does the sun rise? Which direction? East, and it sets in the west. So that means pretty much what? That everywhere throughout the whole world, from east to west, from the rising of the sun till its setting, that everywhere throughout the whole world, what would happen? That there, that people will know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord God and there is no other. God is going to raise up Cyrus, one, to accomplish his purpose for the children of Israel. Two, to make himself known throughout the world to be the extraordinary and exalted, powerful God. More powerful than anything they've ever seen and known. Thirdly, verse 3. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in the secret places that you may know that it is I the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by your name. So God's doing it for the sake of his people Israel. God's doing it to make himself known across broad swashes of the world. And he's doing it to make himself known to Cyrus. Now this is, what's, what's interesting about this is we've already seen twice, it says, I named you, though you do not know me. I equipped you, though you do not know me. And I'm going to do all these things so that you will know me. I'm so thankful for that. Because uh, uh, for him to have been used of God in all of those ways and accomplished God's historic purposes, but then still uniquely enabled by God to accomplish things and then still to remain not knowing Him. How tragic. But how merciful for God to after doing this. What's interesting is this. After God had used Him in all of these ways, then He was going to let Him know Him. Sometimes people think, well, you know, God's only, a, once we're saved, then God gets to work in our lives. 
That's not the case. The Apostle Paul speaks of the fact that he was set apart from his mother's womb. All of his various journeys, all of his various experiences. God, does God only know that we're his people when we finally submit to him and, and turn to him in faith? No. When has God known of the faith that would be granted to us? He's always known. His, our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. His eye is ever and always upon His people. Not a single one of His children will be lost. He keeps us and watches over us, purposeful. And we saw those three purposes in this. The second thing I want us to see in this passage, not only the calling of Koresh, but the singular sovereign. We note in this passage that He is the unrivaled God, the one and only over all. Now, this is, this is important because one of the challenges or things that would take place in the past, each kingdom would have their own gods. And so when they would have victory, they would often think our God was stronger than their God. On one occasion, when God was judging the children of Israel, he allowed the Philistines to take the Ark of the Covenant. And they thought, ha, our God is more powerful than their God. And they took the Ark of the Covenant, and they took it right into the temple of their God. Right? And they put it, you could see, say, it says they set it sort of at the feet and at the side of their idol. And do you know what happened the next day when they came in and, and looked at Dagon, their idol? Boom! It was down. Ultimately, this idol ended up severed. Head removed. There was a demonstration even to these people who momentarily thought, Our God is greater than the God of Israel. They found it. Oh my! No, your God can't do anything you made your god and he can't even walk he can't even fight and at this point he's headless powerless incapable but but this this idea is there and this this tendency could come over people we have overcome israel our god must be more powerful than theirs now we know, and Israel knew, and God wanted that the world would understand, no, 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 you had victory over Israel because I gave that to you to punish them. When I am with them to protect them, nobody defeats them. When it is my purpose to punish them, they cannot stand against anybody. <laughs> but at no point in anyone defeating them did they defeat me. Rather, when any king has come against them and defeated them, they haven't defeated me. They've been serving me. <laughs> we see that in Isaiah chapter 10 with the king of Assyria. They were serving him. We see that with Nebuchadnezzar. He was serving him. We see that here with Cyrus. They're serving him. And he would come to know it. It says this in verse 45. I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. So how many other gods are there? None. He's not done because he says this three times. Look at verse, that was five. Look at verse six. That people from the, the, may know from the rising of the sun and from the west. That there is none besides me. 
I am the Lord, and there is no other. Verse 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity, or the old King James there, evil. All that happens in this world, whether it seems good to you or whether it seems bad to you, please note this. I'm in control, and please note this, no one else is in control. He alone is God. He alone is sovereign. I am the Lord, verse 47 ends, who does all these things. So it's not that certain things someone could say, uh, okay, that God did this and that God did that. We've, we've considered this at times in the past and some people, uh, some of the people still would do this. They would have a God of the rain. Right? And then they'd have a God of the sun. You know, they'd have gods of harvest and they'd have gods of, of winters and gods of summers and they'd have gods that had different skill sets. You know, and if this, if you need this, you go to this God. And if you need this, you go to this God. Well, what the scriptures are saying here is what? <clears throat> There's no other God to go to. In anything that you need, there's only one God to go to. In anything and everything that's done, there's only one God who is actually in control of all things, even those things to us that seem good and those things to us that seem bad. He is still the one who alone is in control. He is the one who does all these things. He is the unrivaled only God over all. He is also the unstoppable God. And to give a sense of that unstoppability, we saw the description that was given in how he would enable the victories of Cyrus. Just subdue nations, loosen the belt of kings, break down doors, break apart bars, reveal to him and give to him Hidden treasures, treasures in darkness, which people who are so convinced that they have so hidden their treasures, no one will ever find them. Mm -mm. <laughs> Nothing can be hidden from God. And so God shows himself as absolutely unstoppable. Even to see, uh, to see that more, look at verse 8 with me. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Again, simply noting there in all of the descriptions that people might think are just nature and just unfolding, God is the one who has created everything and every event that's going on, every weather system, it, God himself is the one who's creating and controlling those things. Also with me, to get a strong sense of this, even as it pertains to the, the richness, it's, it's interesting because in that phrase, it speaks not only of shower and rains, but it connects it to ideas like righteousness and salvation, which ties into what we see over in Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11. It says this, for as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and sprout. Same things we've see, been seeing, giving seed. 
55.11 says this. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Everything that God says, everything that God wants, he does. Does it, are there any occasions where it fails? Are there any occasions where it doesn't succeed? Where he tried and tried and tried but couldn't? Not with God. With me? Yeah. I try, uh, there's so many things outside of my prayer. And so this is one of the great things. So the week, when we go to prayer for anything, I mean, we can pray about things from the scope of, of the, the cosmos, from the scope of the weather, uh, uh, down to uh, personal experiences, to issues pertaining to government, uh, uh, to illnesses. Uh, there's no nothing that we, no subject matter, no issue that we could ever put before God to think, well, this is outside of his control. This is, you know, this he doesn't control. This he doesn't focus on. Every single thing, big and small, whatever is going on, whatever struggle, whatever issue, whatever need for strength, whatever need for knowledge, need for understanding, need for grace, need for endurance, whatever it is, listen, we can come to God. And we, we come to God, and I, and I want to keep getting us to sense this. When we come to God, we are actually coming to God in the fullest and truest sense of that word. I say that because ah, we live in a culture and a world where you, it uses the word God so insignificantly. You know, people, whenever something surprises them, they will somehow reference God without any thought of God. My. You know, and and, and it, it's used flippantly. It's used, it's used smallly. No. I'm, I'm hoping that this passage again starts to get us to take a deep breath in and out and say, wow, the, the, the glory and scope of this God. <laughs> And what one of the riches of it is not only the glory and scope of this God, but we get to go further and say the glory and scope of my God, my Savior, who has made me one of his chosen people. And what's interesting, when we see those things also, um, God's working these things to make himself known in the world. He's working these things to make himself known to, think, to um, Cyrus. But he's doing this also for his chosen people. We know that same idea. In all that is going on, God has so many different layers of things going on. But Romans 8, 28 reminds us as his people what? God works all things together for good. To those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. I, I've heard people say, and, and, and I just pray that they will stop. Say things like this, you know, when people are having hard times, I mean, the worst thing you can say to them is, God works all things together for good. What do you mean that's, how is that ever the worst thing that you can say? That's only the worst thing if, you, if it's just a, supposedly a word to cheer somebody up. 
That is not a, a word to simply cheer somebody up and take their mind off their problems. That is an absolute surety. And so whatever struggles, whatever trials, we will say heartily, brother, sister, know this. God is working. The design is for your good and his glory. And someday we will understand. Trust God. God is good to his people at all times. Don't doubt that. Even in the trials. Even in the fire. When you walk through the water, when you walk through the fire, what does the scripture say to the children of Israel? He will be there. What a wonderful, powerful comfort that that is. So my word shall be that goes out from my mouth. God accomplishes all of his purpose as the creator, even at, with a reference to not only the sending out of his word in the gospel, but the declaring of it in salvation. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and 7, it speaks of salvation. When someone is uh, who, who the enemy has been keeping is in blindness, in darkness, is set free from that blindness, set free from that darkness, the scripture speaks of that as a creative act of God. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, we sing, fast bound in sin and nature's night. You know, here I was, trapped and caught, inescapable. And then it says, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Now I have to translate because that's such old language. You sent your light and gave life. And I rose. The chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed you. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and 7. For God, though the enemy is trying to keep people in blindness, God who said, let light shine out of darkness. And I ask you, what happened when God said, let light shine out of darkness? There was light. I mean, that's the, the beautifully simple way the scriptures say it, right? God said, let there be light and there was light. And so when God, in the, in the hearing of the gospel, speaks with his power and sends his spirit and says, let there be light and life, what happens? There and there is light and life. Oh, and what about the devil trying to keep them blinded? To keep them in darkness? Yeah, the darkness loses when the light shines forth. The keeping them dead in their trespasses and sin is lost when that life is given to them. It's, uh, that's why it says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And it reminds us of this in verse 7. But we have this treasure in clay jars. This salvation. This righteousness. This life. In clay jars. We're not something amazing. We, it's not that he pursued us because we were somehow valuable. This is grace. This is mercy. And it goes on. We have this treasure in clay jars to show that what? The surpassing power belongs to God and not us. I didn't make there be light and life. I didn't escape.
escape from the blindness of the, of the enemy. I didn't loose my chains and run out of that imprisonment. How did I get to the grace in which I stand? And we get to say what? By the power of God who reigned his righteousness and salvation and brought forth fruit. Oh, praise God. Now, we also see that God is not only the uh, unrivaled God, not only the unstoppable God, but He is the unquestionable God. In this world, will there be things that we don't quite get? God, I don't understand why this happened. I don't understand why that's happened. This doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem right. That can happen, but please remember, He's God. He's all-wise. He's all-perfect. And so that's why we see He is the unquestionable God in that we should not doubt, we should not be confused, we should not be conflicted, and we should not contend with Him. It says this in verse 9, Woe to him who strives or quarrels, the New American Standard says, or the old Geneva translation that precedes the King James said, contendeth. Woe to him that contendeth or the New English translation argues. If you're in a bad place, if you got a problem with God, you're in a bad place if you've got such a problem with what's going on that you begin to have a problem with God. We kind of saw that last week with Job. That's not a good place to be. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen vessels. Does the clay say to him who formed it, what are you making? That's a simple question. Does the clay say to him who formed it, what are you making? Now, if when a, an a, a earthly potter was making a pot and the clay started speaking, what do you think would happen there? Yeah, it's time to run. Because that is weird. Because it, it, you might say it's impossible because... Clay has no life. Well, it's impossible, ought to be impossible for us to make a complaint to God because apart from Him, we would have no life. We would have no shape. We would have nothing. So it does not make sense to complain to God. But somehow, as much as it doesn't make sense, we are who we are. We kind of still do it, don't we? May God help us to get this clear in our heads. Does the clay say to him, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. You messed up. You did wrong. Maybe we go further. Not only did you go do wrong, but now you better fix it. Can we say that to God? No. Because if a potter makes one and it has no handles, then what do you say? The potter did not want handles on that one. And if he makes one with ten handles, you might think there's no need for more than two. I mean, how many? Uh, yeah, you don't have ten hands. What's the need for ten handles? If the potter makes a, a pot with ten handles, can anyone say anything to him? It was his. 
He can make things however he wants, however many, however few, however big, however small, for whatever purpose, for whatever use. He can do what he wants. Why? Because he's the potter. And that is the reference to who God is. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begatting? Or to a mother, with what are you in labor? Now, of course, this is before the age of ultrasound where someone could tell you in advance whether it's going to be a boy or a girl. But the idea was this. Um, what are you having? A child. Yeah, boy or girl. A child. I mean, why are, you, why are you making issues? Why are you getting into contentions that are going to get you nowhere? There's no progress to be made in these attacks. There's no progress to be made in these questions. Get rid of these unnecessary questions. It gets you nowhere. That's the idea that's being put across in here. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed it, ask of me the things to come. You can ask, I know everything that's happened, happening, or going to happen. I'm the one who's in control. You could ask me that. But listen, though you can ask me what's going to happen, what you can't do is tell me what I got to do. Will you command me concerning my children or the works of my hands? Do we get to tell God what to do? Prayer is what? Hopefully we often will call it petition there's intercession we pray for one another but when we make requests and petitions that's different than demands and commands right i was tragically in a prayer meeting one time where there was a sick child uh, i mean it was a child who had um, polio in childhood and so had the ongoing crippling uh, physical and mental limitations from that polio and this I appreciate that this lady was concerned for this child and thought it would be a benefit to the family if this child was no longer crippled and no longer uh, struggling and and people were praying for different things in this prayer meeting and this this lady stood up and she began praying like this God you see this sick boy here God, I command you this moment in the name of Jesus Christ to heal this boy. And I just, I just sat there for a moment and I was thinking I might scoop back lest lightning strike because that ain't right. I mean, what, you know, and what, what's amazing is uh, now that that boy has passed on, he's, he's no longer, but if you were to speak to the parents, the parents will say that the grace of God in their life, the things that he taught them, the dependence on, on God, um, they are so thankful. With all of the struggles and all of the weaknesses and all of the limitations he had, that God had good things for them in that difficult circumstance. They will say that. But this lady thought, I will command God we can come before him boldly. We have access to him. But at what point do we issue commands? At what point do we turn things around? 
You know, I, I appreciate the, the heart of this lady to see the child healed and, and the sympathy for the family, but there was a misunderstanding in how it all works. A recognition that we have access to God, a recognition we have boldness, a recognition that God can accomplish anything, any purpose for his son that he pleases, even the healing of that child. But we don't take authority over God. And so we got to make sure we understand, will we, you command me concerning my children, the work of my hand? And then he explains why, who gets to make all the decisions. Verse 12, I made the earth and created man on it. All right. It's mine. I designed it. I organize it. It's mine. It was my hands that stretched out the heaven and I commanded their hosts. So the earth, men on it, the heavens and all of their hosts, pretty much everything you see in creation. That, that, that was a general way of bookending everything. Heaven and earth. <laughs> Who made it? Who controls it? Who commands it? Yes, God. And lastly, we, we close out with this, and I would say this is, and this is so beautiful. We see an analogy of the anointed ones. The phrase anointed appears only two times in the book of Isaiah. One is in this passage uh, where it speaks in 45 verse 1. Say to the, uh, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. The other place that appears is in Isaiah 61, 1, and it says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prison to those who are bound. Now, that particular anointed, do you have any idea who that's referring to in Isaiah 61? Well, if your Bible has Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, you would find out that's Jesus Christ. And, and it's, a, it's an amazing parallel, some of the phrasing that, that, is, that is given here. Si, and, I, and I'll just give these as, a, as, as food for thought. Cyrus was going to be one who it says would be called to be a shepherd. And what does the scripture tell us about Jesus? Yeah, he is, Hebrews tells us, the great shepherd of the sheep. John 10, he is the good shepherd. With regard to Cyrus, not only is he, is he going to be called to be a shepherd, but it, it, it's going to go on further and it say that he's called to fulfill all of God's desire. It, it, this is the way that it says it. He is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, the ESV says, but actually the, the word literally is not purpose. He shall fulfill all of my delight, all of my pleasure, all of my purpose. He's going to do everything that I please. And Cyrus did to some practical extent. But Jesus did to a perfect extent. So perfect that John chapter 8 says this of Jesus, verse 29. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. We also see that Cyrus was going to be called to establish a city and a temple. 
and he would send the children of Israel back and they would reestablish physical Jerusalem and they would come in and they would rebuild a physical temple. Jesus would come and he would say, you break down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Are you a king? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. In the book of Hebrews, it reminds us that we have come to a heavenly Jerusalem. A heavenly city. It says there in Galatians chapter 4 also, the Jerusalem of this earth is in slavery. But the Jerusalem from above, she is our mother. Christ would establish, a, in a sense, a spiritual city of which we would become citizens. He would establish a spiritual temple in which we ourselves would become members. So, so Christ is the superior to Cyrus in the analogy of the anointed. And uh, what, what the last thing that I would encourage you to do is you can see also in Ezra chapter 1, he's come to kingship. Cyrus is now the king. And it says this, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, that the word of the Lord would be fulfilled by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and put it in writing. And Cyrus said this in verse 2 of Ezra 1. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. So he was named and he didn't know him. He was equipped and had all those victories and he didn't know it. Now, a Jewish history writer named Josephus in his book Antiquities in chapter 11, verses 3 and following, you can see uh, it's recorded there that Cyrus was read the prophecy of Isaiah. And in the reading of it, he was able to look back and say, this God called me by name before I was born. All of these victories that I've accomplished, I've done because he was with me. I it, it's been fulfilled exactly as he said. And he's called me to send back his people and establish that city. And so you know what he does? He acknowledges that all of his past was brought about by God. And in obedience to the word of God, in recognition of the king of heaven, he now sends the children of Israel back. He sends them back and tells them, go and rebuild the temple. Not only that, he gets all of the stuff that had been stolen from the temple and he gives it to them. Not only that, he gives them letters and say, everywhere you go, whatever you need, gold, silver, wood, whatever's needed to rebuild it, show these letters and everybody has to give it to you. And why that is so amazing. And I end with this. Isaiah 45 verse 13 says this. I have stirred him up in righteousness. And I will make his way level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. Not for price or for reward. Cyrus would get nothing. The children of Israel gave nothing to Cyrus in order to be set free. Actually, he himself gave on their behalf. And indeed for us, the superior to Cyrus, the same thing. Did we give God a gift that we should be saved? 
Did we do anything? Was there a price or reward? Did we pay him back? No. Jesus paid for us. He set us free. There's nothing that we gave to earn it, deserve it, influence it, or warrant it. It's all of God's grace. It's all of God's purpose for us to be God's people for God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, again, I'm so thankful for these dear believers that you gather here. Um, thankful for your word. It has so much to say and it's so full of richness. And I, and I thank you for the way that you've stirred up these dear people. And endure. Lord, we, we, we appreciate and recognize your word. It's just so full. It's so rich. It's so um, powerful. We see the effect that it even would have, in a sense, in the life of Cyrus, that through the hearing of your word, it stirred him up to act in obedience and faith. Lord, we pray that your word would stir us in the same way. We, we look to you. We ask um, that you'd continue to do a work in this place. We want to have a priority for your word. We know that so many churches these days, that their tendency is, is to turn to so many different things. But your word alone is the living word. Your word alone is that which judges and, and, and reveals the thoughts and hearts of men. Lord, it's what renews our mind in knowledge. And so we really need to have this priority of your word. It is what equips us and directs us to sing your glory and praises and to live a life of faithfulness. So may we never shrink back from having a priority for your word. God, please continue to give your people a hunger, a thirst, a love for your word. Because in it, they draw near to you. And a greater and increasing love and appreciation for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.